edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, one of the fun things I do for this show is I go through university book catalogs. Uh, you know, they send it out to folks, and so it's like sitting down with a, a little uh, list of treasures, and I go through and pick the things I, I want to see, and usually they send them to me. Uh, and I was going through uh, the Princeton University Press catalog, and I saw this uh, little announcement about a series of writers on writers. And the, the, the writers that were being uh, written about were, you know, fairly familiar for the most part. Susan Sontag, uh, Walt Whitman, W.H. Auden. But then I saw an, a, a, uh, uh, a listing for a book on Henry Miller, and it really struck me because... Uh, Henry Miller is, you know, one of the figures, if you grow up like me, reading through the kind of uh, underground countercultural canon, uh, you know, Henry Miller is an important writer to, to turn to, um, but he's also not someone anybody really talks about very much anymore, uh, and there's, there's very specific reasons for that, but he's someone that, though I have not read deeply, uh, I have re read enough to know um, that he's uh, of, of great interest, and also as a... Um, you know, as a California cultural historian, uh, the fact that Miller uh, moves to Big Sur and, and sort of forms his own version of a certain kind of Calif West Coast eco-anarchist mysticism, but very grounded and salty and hedonistic, uh, was sort of, you know, sort of a perfect character. I mean, he fits right in line for me, even though he's not primarily a California-associated writer. The fact that he goes there, I think, says a great deal about his work and these themes of anarchism, of the body, of, of, uh, of, of a certain kind of mysticism that's, that's very informal, let's call it. Um, so I was very intrigued by this book, which is uh, uh, it was written by John Burnside, a poet and fiction writer as well, well as a memoirist whose name I had heard of. I'd come across some pieces here and there, blah, 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 but I hadn't been familiar with his work. And uh, his book on Henry Miller or How to Be an Anarchist is really wonderful. I mean, it was really an incredible pleasure to read. He's a wonderful writer, and he also has this uh, capacity to sort of weave between passages in this book and elements of his own life, a reflection on history, uh, the invocation of a, of, a, of, a, of a ballad, and it all, it, it all weaves together really wonderfully, like a conversation uh, with a very erudite person who can move smoothly between frames. Um, so, you know, I ended up being as, at least as interested in John Burnside as in Henry Miller uh, as I read through the book, um, and so I'm looking forward to this conversation very much. So, John, uh, thanks for uh, joining us on Expanding Mind. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, you're in uh, you're you're in Scotland. You're Scottish. You're you're, you're Scottish. But where do you uh, where do you reside now? Well, um, it's not surprisingly, I'm, I'm a few hundred yards from a golf course. I live in St Andrews. Um, I live near St Andrews. I live about ten miles from St Andrews, but I work at the university in St Andrews. So I'm just around the corner from the, the most famous golf course in the world. <laughs> you, are you a golf player? No, <laughs> but I always uh, I always insist on telling people in America that, that I'm I'm very close to the golf course that everyone wants to play on, so that they, I, I can be envied for one thing. I'm not rich. I'm not handsome, but I'm very near the golf course. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. You know, I always wonder. You know, as I, I know you, you've done a lot of writing on 
ecology and and there's a, uh-huh. a, a marvelous kind of en- environmentalist twist to this book on Miller as well. Um, and I, I've always sort of felt like as an environmentalist, the the uh, the golf course is a very strange kind of thing because it's kind of like a simulacrum of the natural world that you want. It's like if you look at like a typically developed area, but there's a golf course, you go, well, at least there's somewhere for the birds to go. But then, of course, it's incredibly toxic and they're managing all of the grass and it's it's not at all an open space. And yet it has this strange kind of reference to some other, you know, more Edenic or pastoral kind of uh, kind of experience. So I find that very ironic. <laughs> well, I first came, I, I lived away from Scotland for most of my life. But just before I returned to Scotland, I wrote a rather long article in the Guardian newspaper in England um, about golf courses. And I'm actually trying to point out that um, golf courses are not in any way kind of environmentally friendly. Most of them aren't anyway, because they're so highly managed. And I, I, I pointed to one right near where I live now, and, uh, and then I moved to where I live. And then there was a, a, a reception to honor you know, local writers and artists uh, at the local council, uh, the, the, the community, the kind of central council area where the, where the council meets. And all the councillors were there welcoming, welcoming us. And then I arrived, and I could hear them all saying, that's him, that's the guy. <laughs> and no one, but one, only one guy spoke to me. Because, of course, those guys were all getting, you know, well, I shouldn't say it. Allegedly, they were all getting some kind of benefit, shall we say, from the, the development of the golf course. A good golf course, actually, an old-fashioned Scottish golf course, isn't so intrusive upon the natural world. The trouble is that everybody these days wants to play on fast courses. Uh, they haven't got time to play for six or seven hours, which is how, they used to, how long they used to play in the old days. And so they want a fast course. That, that has to be managed, and it has to have lots of, you know, uh, herbicides, pesticides, um, you know, special treatment for the grass, get rid of moss, etc. So it is, it is pretty intrusive to, to the natural world, yeah. Well, it's funny. It's just another example of the kind of process that you're talking about, uh, you know, throughout the, throughout the book, the sort of pressures of, of modernity, of management, of uh, consolidation, of, of uh, control, uh, and how it draws us further and further away from uh, the natural world and the possibility of a kind of uh, deeper encounter and it's something that you that you get through through telling something about the life and and literature and and ideas of henry miller i'm curious when you thought about hey uh you know i don't know if they approached you with say hey john you want to write a book about a about a writer (laughs) or uh or whether you approached them but what was it about henry miller that uh that drew you not you know i mean there's a lot of reasons there but but particularly i'm kind of curious whether the fact that he's sort of not really talked about. He's a little bit, uh, a little bit unseemly for uh, many contemporary literary people. Whether that was part of the draw <laughs> that you wanted to, uh, you know, uh, restore some uh, some attention to this figure. Well, it was a little of everything. And what really happened was this is absolutely true. Um, ben Tate from um, uh, Princeton University Press popped in, in, into my office one day, and because he was visiting St Andrews, and he said, "Hey, hi," and he introduced himself and we sat and chatted for a while and i'd seen some of the books a couple of the books that they'd done the wonderful book um on elizabeth bishop for example that colm tobin had done quite recently and so i um yeah i was i was very keen to do a book on another writer and so he said who would you choose and my mouth my, my head was saying marianne moore my favorite poet 
and my mouth said Henry Miller. And I thought, isn't that strange? But um, being an old anarchist and a bit of a kind of uh, someone who likes to go with the flow and everything um, and, and let chance take its course, I thought, I said that for a reason. You know, obviously I, I meant to say Marianne Moore, but I said Henry Miller for a reason. And I'd been thinking about Henry Miller for a while, and um, especially The Air-Conditioned Nightmare, which I think is a great book. And he wrote the book at the wrong time, the wrong, the worst possible time to write a book like that. It was very critical of American consumerism, um, and it was published just after the, after the Second World War, when it was obviously America had just won the war, had saved civilization from the Nazis, and, and, you know, and um, America was feeling very good about itself. And here's this guy who had just gone, taken the book back from Paris, saying, you've messed it all up, you've turned it into an ugly, environmentally ugly, um, socially ugly, unjust consumer society. Americans did not want to hear that at that time. But obviously the, 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 big, the big elephant in the room, as soon as I'd said it, was um, his sexual, shall we say, sexual writings, um, the sex history, as it were. And originally, you know, I, I actually was naive enough to think that I could um, write about Henry. I, I call him Henry when I like him, and I call him Miller when I don't. Um, I, I write about Henry, the good guy, the guy who was into, you know, spirituality and, and um, you know, anarchism and, and the guy who more or less invented Big Sur. Um, the guy who was a really, really compassionate guy. Um, he was a wonderful um, anti-war activist. He was very, very honest about himself, I think, in most ways anyway. And, and for me, he's also a kind of tragic figure towards the end of his life. This is a guy who is so obsessed with sex and, and, and maybe romance as well that at the end of his life, he's, he's married to a, a, a Japanese pop singer who's one-third his age, and he's agreed to a non-sexual marriage in which he's allowed to sleep with her, next to her sometimes and watch her sleep. I mean, that's too beautiful to, to not to not talk want to talk about, you know. Absolutely. I mean, I I, I love that story, by the way, because I uh, mm. I wrote a just at the beginning in terms of choosing the book. I had there was a there's a similar series from uh, now from Bloomsbury on thirty three and a third where pe- people write about rock records, oh, yeah. single albums. Yeah. And I had I had the same thing. Like they came to me, and I was like, and I thought of like sophisticated bands that I should write about. But I, I, I just, it came out of me. I had to write about Led Zeppelin. And I, and I went, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it. And, I, and then I, I had this dream where, like, I was with Jimmy Page and there was candles and all this stuff. And so I woke up and I just had to write it. And, it, it, you know, it was actually the, probably the most fun I've ever had writing a book. It was, it was really, a, really a treat. But, but to get back to, uh, to Miller, yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about the air-conditioned nightmare because one of the things that, that you point out is not only – did he have this prescient critique of American culture, which has just now become world culture, and you can have the same mm-hmm. kind of level of of, uh, of of issues on a on a global scale right now? Um, but it also says something about what he was choosing to do with his life, which is part of what this sort of how to be an anarchist thread of the book is, in that he was he was pursuing a kind of flight. He had come back from Paris where he had spent many years and written some of his notorious uh, writings. Um, and But he, he kind of hit the road in a sort of proto-Jack uh, Kerouac uh, kind of way, although he was doing it obviously much earlier. And it seems mm-hmm. to um, 
to represent something that you emphasize in the book, a, a key element of the anarchist life, which is uh, la fuite, the flight, the escape. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that as an idea, but also what, what Miller was doing when he returned to the United States after the war. Well, the central idea of La Suite is that um, you, um, when you're faced with an impossible situation, um, you, you have to do something. You have to go somewhere. And the idea is, 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 is taken, the original idea is taken from um, a book by, a um, strange book by a guy who was actually a pharmacologist, a specialist pharmacologist, who invented, uh, I forgot what it's called in the U.S., chlorpromazine in the U.K., but this was a great drug that was used on men with uh, PTSD, etc. after the Second War. Excuse me. <coughs> um, after the Second War, they, they used this drug. And it was a great um, healing drug. And actually, when I was ill, um, I had an illness, uh, mental problems in my early 20s. They used the same drug for me. And it was hugely beneficial. And what it does, it shuts everything down. And it just lets the minds go where it wants to go. But, but um, Henri Laborie, the French pharmacologist who invented this, wrote a book called Eloge de la Fuite in praise of flight. And he said, all of us should have that ability to, when things get hard, when things get impossible or untenable, that we just take off. As if you were like, he says it's like being a sailor out on a boat. And uh, you, you, you're, you're going along on the boat, everything's fine, and suddenly a storm comes up. What do you do? Do you try and get back to harbor? Or do you just go with the winds and let the winds take you wherever they take you and then resolve the difficulty when you get to someplace safe, someplace you're able to stop and think? And I love the, the story that my, my equivalent for that for Henry is um, uh, one day he came back to his apartment and I think it was his third wife. For, one of his wives had left him and she'd taken everything. She'd taken even the furniture. So there he was in an empty apartment, almost no money, because Henry never had any money ever. Um, and so he got a few uh, fruit boxes, you know, kind of packing cases. And he sat around on these packing cases thinking, what shall I do now? So his, his idea then was to go out and buy some roller skates. So he bought himself a pair of roller skates, and he roller skated around the apartment for three or four days, thinking about, hey, what shall I do, you know, what shall I do next? And I think the roller skates are the key, that's part of the flight. He also um, he hugely admired a guy called George Dibbon, who was a German um, uh, writer and all, he did all kinds of things. He was a farmer, he was a writer, he was an entrepreneur. And when he was faced with Nazism, he decided that he had to leave Germany. And so he got a boat, he more or less made the boat himself with his brother-in-law. And he sailed to New Zealand on, on a homemade boat from Germany. It took him a long time to get there, but he'd been in New Zealand when he was younger, so he wanted to go back there again. And he went there to, just to think about, um, you know, what, what, how to live in the world where his homeland was, you know, the Nazi Germany. Of course, as soon as he got to New Zealand, they arrested him and put him in a detention camp because he was a German. But um, even then, he was, still, he was still able to think about how he wanted to live his life. And he wrote a rather wonderful book, um, um, Quest, about his about his quest for a kind of world citizenship. And he threw away his German passport. He had no, um, no national colors or any other identification on his boat. He made up all, all these things himself. He wrote his own passport and travel documents. And he traveled the world. And whenever he got stopped, um, people would say to him, who are you? And he would say, this is me. I am citizen of the world. 
and you know George Dibbon. And Henry loved that. He wrote to Dibbon. He wrote a book about. He wrote a review about the book, and he um, they be, they became friends by mail, and never really got to know each other because of the distances. And then Dibbon died, but Henry made sure that um, his family got some money and some support because you know Dibbon had lost quite a lot of money on the way. But a fascinating figure, but. Henry Miller picked these people up and found found them fascinating. And, and when he lived in Greece just before he was in America, he made friends with a lot of people who were in that same position. They were faced with, what did we do? Do we stay in Greece? The Nazis are coming and moving across Europe. Um, and of course, that's why that's why Henry was there. He was in Paris first, then he moved to Greece, and eventually moved to the States. And each time he was fleeing from the Nazis, but it wasn't just that, it was... He he was he knew he had spent his time in Paris. He never went back, really meaningfully, and um, he 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 lived his Paris days. They were over. I think he fell in love with Greece, but he knew it, it wasn't a short-term thing for him, and he also knew that he had to go back. He had to go back and confront America, because he left New York with ten dollars, going to Paris. He'd be a complete failure in his own eyes, and he wanted to go back to America. And I think he want. I think he wanted to become an American again, and he. I think he seriously hoped to. So the flight was away from his former life, back to a place where he'd been very unsuccessful. But he really wanted to, um, you know, rebuild something there. But this, uh, the first thing he did, of course, was to buy a car. He was a hopeless driver. He was a really very, very bad driver and a worse mechanic. And he drove from um, New York to Los Angeles. What one of the definitions you have in the book, where you're, or one of the ways of characterizing Lafuite, is you talk about going beyond the point where it is possible to fall back on ideas, and I really like that because it's it's not just about something you do physically, uh, you know, whether you you know you escape or you get in your car and you just drive or or you tear up yeah. your passport or something like that. That there, it's also a kind of uh, place to put your mind, and and I think even the example you have here of Henry returning to to the States also points to the way that it's not just about escape uh, or, 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 you know, leaving a situation that's constraining. It also can direct you towards things that will be challenging and complicated and lead even further than just the sort of, you know, maybe an adolescent idea of escape that we might have. And in a way, it feels like one of the things you're trying to do is recuperate an idea of escape or an idea of flight away from mere escapism. Oh, yeah, it's, it's definitely not escapism. Um, the flight actually confronts you with the hardest possible conditions. Uh, if you if you t- turn your sails into the wind and let the wind take you, um, wherever it goes, um, you, you end up in a very strange place, completely unfamiliar place. You have to work from there. And, and, and in fact, the more... The, the more extravagant the storm as it were the more the more violent the storm the more of a provocation to the individual involved to think of something to, to think of something really new to, to to really um break with old habits and i think i think anybody who's working uh, working in the arts for example just that's just one example um knows that feeling of hey i know i can do this now it's like you know picasso knew he could paint another blue picture if he wanted to but he got tired of doing that but um, it isn't easy uh, to say, okay, I've done blue pictures, now what am I going to do next? It isn't that simple decision. You really have to break something in yourself. Because 
I mean, I know as a writer that uh, there have been times in my life when I just thought, I'm doing the same thing again. I'm just doing what I did before. I don't want to do that. And, uh, and it's recognizably me, you know, and someone will say, oh, I like that. And you say, oh, yeah, I don't want people to like that. I, I want to do something. I mean, it's not hugely different necessarily, but you want to break something, break habits, break expectations, break the comfort zone a little bit or, or even a lot if you can and then try something different. And this is also becomes one of the ways that you, uh, while, while not excusing all of uh, Miller's behavior, let's say, uh, e- either regarding women or the, the stories he tells, and it's always hard to know exactly if he's, you know, imbo- uh, uh, how, how he's embossing this, the, the tale. But in a way, oh, this, yeah. this, this, uh, this Lafuite gives us an image of, of to help explain some of his attitudes uh, about women and partly based on, on, on fleeing his own childhood and his own, you know, uh, sense of his parents. Uh, and, and while I don't want, I, while we could probably spend the whole uh, time talking <laughs> about uh, Miller's sexuality, which is, of course, the big thing. I mean, even when I was, you know, in the early 80s growing up and, and starting to read this as a, as a young man, as an adolescent, starting to read into mm-hmm. the canon of, counter, of counterculture, even then there was sort of a, an unseemly glaze around Henry Miller that didn't happen to, you know, Nabokov or James Joyce or other books or even Burroughs, even other books that were banned no. that were extreme. But there was something about Miller that just didn't, didn't mesh with the kind of um, – erotic ethos as it developed through you know after uh, after the counterculture so i don't want to spend all the time there but it, i think we should spend a little bit of time there <laughs> so um yeah just a, a little bit about how lafuite helps us understand miller's attitudes and and relationships to some degree yeah well I mean, it's true, and, and, and you know, it's unfortunate that certain things are cliches because they remain true. It is true that Miller had a terrible, uh, really really degrading childhood because of his mother. And and I think I think we, we still don't um, fully understand how awful it is for a child to see one of their parents ritually and, and, and steadily humiliated by the other parent day after day after day after day. Um, we're, we're more aware of it, obviously, in the way in which men abuse women um, and in the domestic situation where children are witnessing the abuse of their mothers. I grew up in that situation. My my father constantly belittled and threatened the entire family. I wrote about that quite extensively. And I feel as though I somewhat understand you know, what it feels like to be the child who sees the mother being humiliated. I was trying to imagine, you know, from the other side, Henry was obviously very fond of his father, and his father was a tailor. He wasn't very successful, but he put food on the table. But the mother was constantly, every day, was at him, at him, at him. He wasn't successful enough. He wasn't manly enough, etc. And I think, you know, Henry grew up in the Theodore Roosevelt days of manliness, you know, manly men who, you know, stormed bridges and and, 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 and around the sides of mountains and stuff like that. And um, he, he was very self-conscious about that whole thing. Somehow his father hadn't been really manly enough. And was he? That was the question. Could he be a, a manly man? And um, he came from quite an unprepossessing start. He wasn't attractive. He was physically not particularly. He was actually much fitter than he looked, actually. But he wasn't very, you know, he didn't have a very impressive physique or style or anything. 
Um, but um, he also grew up on, on, on the kind of soft porn of the time. It's a, it's a fact that Frank Harris, the kind of soft pornographer, amongst other things, was a, was a client of his father, a father's tailor's business. And Harris routinely picked up suits from um, Mr. Miller's father and didn't pay for them. But he would go and sit in the shop for hours at a time and regale all these men that they used to hang around with preposterous stories about his sexual exploits. And I've seen, I've seen, I'm sure you have, you've seen men do this, where they, they, they're almost challenging themselves to see how far they can go to tell a story that is just ridiculous. And you just, someone's going to stop and say, oh, don't be stupid, that's a ridiculous, that's not, that didn't happen. But of course, if you're the popular guy, if you're the guy everybody looks to, you can take that a long, long way, you know. And I think Henry learned from watching Harris, and I think he was always doing that. He was always saying, "Let's just see how much more, you know, salacious detail I can put in before someone calls me." Also, you can see that some of his earlier writing is very much modelled on the kind of porn that was available when he was young. It was the kind of thing like a man with a maid and those kinds of, um, you know, kind of soft porn, Victorian stuff where men were always kind of powerful and women were always first resistant and then deeply grateful for having been made real women of. And, and, and Henry loved playing with that, that idea. Of, you know, he came along and suddenly this woman's life was turned around. And he would tell these ridiculous stories. I think some of them were true and some of them were just ridiculous and absurd. But he was always testing those boundaries. Well, what are the... One of the points you make there that I thought was very interesting, and it took me too long in my life to figure this out, how much uh, for men or straight men, uh, uh, unconsciously and sometimes consciously, that their relations with, with women, what they're doing with them, with the, how they're thinking about them, how they're approaching their, their, their sex with them, but also uh, how they're telling the story or how they're thinking about it in their own heads – a lot of that has to do with the way men are relating with other men. And, yeah, yeah. And, and that there's a power struggle among men that has a very particular, somewhat <laughs> pernicious uh, quality to it that in a way uh, is also always going on um, alongside the pursuit of, of, of women, the pursuit of sexual experiences or of, or of love, or, love relationships. So there's this element of power that's... A, little bit harder to see necessarily but it plays an important role in, in how you look at uh the way that that miller both related to women but also told stories about women yeah and and i i for, for miller men were very important in his life his male friendships with a possible exception of a nice then i think most of his strong friendships his meaningful friendships were with men usually with men who were um artists or poets usually not very well known or, 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 you know, not known in his culture, but people he could just, he could just relax with. Um, there's a wonderful passages in, like, Air Conditioned Nightmare and the Colossus of Maruzi where he's talking to American painters, um, Greek, Greek painters and poets. And these men he could relax with, he felt quite comfortable with. But he had, he had lived in New York and he lived in that world where, you know, prowess was everything. It was either physical prowess financial prowess. If you didn't have those things, then it was sexual prowess. And the thing was, it, it, it's, you know, if you could tell a good story, 
people are quite happy to suspend disbelief. If you can entertain them, if you can shock them a little bit, make them laugh, they'll, they'll accept you. And I think it's what, that's how he worked. He told these crazy stories and people enjoyed it. Uh, on the other hand, it has to be remembered that there is something profoundly romantic about Henry Miller that he very much tried to hide from originally from his friends and his people around him and also perhaps from his readers. But later on, it comes out more and more. He's a very romantic person. And I think that the kind of attraction he felt for females as a whole, not just, um, you know, as it were, acceptable women, but there's an incredible passage in the Colossus Maruzzi where he's a, a, admiring this beautiful young Greek woman. And then, then you suddenly realize, no, she's not. She's 10 or 11 years old. And he's, he's, just, he's admiring the beauty of this individual. And you're thinking, Henry, this is sexual. What's going on with you, you know? And it makes you very uncomfortable. I mean, deeply uncomfortable. And yet, for him, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a kind of romance going on in his head. Yeah, it's, it's funny. a very mixed up kid. Yeah, yeah. What one other point on that on that section <laughs> where you're talking about uh, about relationships with women? One of the other points you make that is you know particularly in those times that the sort of game of courtship. Uh, was mm. always an implied property relationship that there was some it was it was already embedded even in its most sort of you know delightful early phase there was always the presumption that what was happening here was was a move towards a kind of exchange and a kind of propertarian view of human existence because this is the dominant mode it's we're in capitalism we're in patriarchy everything is about property and ownership mm. and that the, the the tension of of courtship has these kinds of things implied and that and that part of uh miller's rejection was also a kind of rejection of that whole mode of uh of property and you get to yeah. that question of property through a very interesting way which is <laughs> talking about these wonderful uh, uh, ballads, you know, which I know yeah. from the the music of Fairport Convention, you know, Maddie Groves, yeah. <laughs> Tom Lynn, the you know, the Mountain High. I mean, and I'm like, well, I know these songs, but you 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 show the way that even in these sort of you know more traditional situations, that this tension around property, around time versus the moment, that it's a very deep kind of structure, uh, at least in in modern life. Yeah, I mean, I think all folk culture throughout history, folk culture has tried to tell the truth of the, the separate truth that goes through our lives that hasn't got to do with calendars and bottom line and bosses and lords and ladies, but the, the, the human narratives that actually we're, we're all should be engaged in that shouldn't be modified by these things. I mean, Magic Groves is a great example. There, there are many variants, but and some people believe to this day that um, the stories about respecting, you know, um, hierarchies in society. But I am sure the, pagan, the original pagan singers of this song were saying, there's one in the eye for the Lord who's taken our land, who's taken our everything. You think about Britain in those days when those songs were being sung originally, England was a country full of more or less semi-independent groups of people who were farming who were, were living a, a, almost a semi-anarchic lifestyle, actually. There was a lot more autonomy in the local region. Women had much more say in decisions. Children, in fact, also. And then in come the Normans, 
Um, one writer, Paul Kingsnorth, a writer from uh, England, said um, the worst thing that happened to Britain was the invasion of the Normans in 1066. And okay, that might sound extreme, but they came in and they imposed this massive hierarchy on everyone where everyone had their place in society and there were a lot of people at the bottom. It makes me very much think about 2008, right? You know, there's the 1% and there's the rest. And the 1% was the king and his cronies. He took over all the land so he could, he could hunt deer there. People would be executed. They'd be put to death for going and hunting a deer when they'd try to feed their family. When I was a kid, my uncle was a poacher. I mean, we wouldn't have been killed, but when we went out poaching, we knew that we would get fined or, you know, we, could not, we couldn't afford to pay the fines. Um, and, and Americans, I think, find it hard to understand. I mean, most people in America, if they want to live anywhere that's possible to do so, can go out hunting for a reasonable permit. But here, the land, in Scotland especially, the land is owned by a very small group of people still, and they control it fiercely. And, um, you know, everybody else is, is, is to fend for themselves. So we once lived on the land in Britain, and that, then we became more or less like, um, almost like serfs. And then when people had this kind of very simple, um, uh, basic kind of living level, living kind of standard, that was taken away during enclosures when they replaced people with sheep, because sheep were more, were more profitable than having farm laborers. So people were forced into, um, you know, wandering along the roads, trying to find, you know, casual work. And eventually that, was, that is what fed into the Industrial Revolution. So the Industrial Revolution was based on the almost forced impoverishment of the rural community and the mass of those rural people. So we have all of that. And, and, and folk music, folk stories, they all keep their base in the rural community. I think mostly on the small town community, and every now and again when they're needed, they, 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 there's a resurgence of these stories and these songs. We had it with Fairport Convention in the 70s because you know we were very aware of what was going on in the 70s. Um, I remember growing up in the 70s thing, we're actually going to have a revolution. We're going to change things, and of course the backlash was so strong and powerful that um, you know people thought it was all over. And I spent the rest of my life wandering around saying, hey, it's not over. We can do other things. You know, we wait for the next chance to try and do something. And we do different things. We're, I got involved with environmentalism. Some people got involved with cooperatives. You know, I, I loved it when um, Occupy came along. We had all of these different groups of people using their imaginations to say, you know, the fight continues. Property, life isn't about property. Life is about you know, living as if property didn't exist. And, and Henry Miller was all about that. I mean, he was terrible with money when he actually did start earning money, um, money, you know, later on in his life when his books were published. He would give it all away, you know, because there was something intrinsic to his nature that, that didn't like accumulation. Yeah, I, lo- I love that story that that he would just give it away to p- p- friends, and I'd heard it from other other accounts of, of his life in Big Sur, where he was just people just asking me, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." I mean, it's an amazing uh, amazing place to be, and and it 
it uh, what what I like about it too is it's so challenging. I mean, even people who sh- who share a lot of the values we're talking about, the idea mm-hmm. of actually just kind of giving your cash away all the time when you're when you're usually broke, and then you finally get something, you're someone borrow. Oh, you need some money. Here you go. It it kind of shows like uh, how deeply woven we are in some ways to these social programs and that's really a programming and that's really one of the main yeah. dynamics you know that you talk about in terms of miller's anarchism and your own anarchism as you talk about developing becoming an anarchist as a young person and and how the the meaning of that has changed for you but there's this this real sense between uh social forces social programming as a kind of um artificial at best and, and, you know, sort of cruel and exploitative at worst mechanism to control and uh, cover over this other possibility that human beings have, which is something more like being attuned to a different kind of order, to a more natural form of order, or to use Taoist language, which you, you also use at, at points, you know, something like like the Tao, that there's a way to be in accord with reality that does not involve all these social mechanisms. That's a better way to live. It's better for everybody. It's better for the animals. It's better for our children. Uh, and yet, to to try to find that in modern life, to to even to talk about it, even to say, yes, I'm John Burnside. I'm a poet, and yes, I'm also an anarchist, is itself still. Uh, you know, a, a challenging thing. Um, and so, uh, you, you know, I'd, I'd like to kind of hear how, I don't know, how your your anarchism and, and Miller's resonate or how you found yourself sort of through his writing or in terms of how to seek that accord with a more fundamental order. Yeah, well, I think, I think obviously the word, it's, it's actually a bit of a, a, a red flag to any bull that um, one says the word anarchist at all. And, and some people try to avoid using the word. I, and I see no point in doing so because the word actually says what it means. Anarchic. I'm, 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 not, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of people making their own decisions, working together in communities, making their own decisions, um, not having some kind of order imposed upon them. If, we're st- if you take anybody um, and sit them down in a situation where everything is new, what do they do? They, they don't look for a textbook or a leader. Well, hopefully they don't. Um, they look at what's happening around them, and they say, okay, there's people over there eating those kinds of fruits. So they're edible. I can eat those. And this is happening over here. This is happening. And they start observing the, the, the world around them, and they begin to put, to put together a program that, that, that allows them to live a life that they want to live. I mean, this is what Taoism is about. Lao Tse says, um, you can't name the Tao, you can't describe it, you can't say what it is, but you can see its effects everywhere around you. Wherever you look, you see the workings of the natural order. All you have to do is keep your eyes open, your ears open, and pay attention. And I think that's the basis of anarchism for me, which means that, as an, and this may surprise some people, as an anarchist, I believe I don't believe in violence. And people think, oh, anarchists, don't you throw bombs into archdukes' carriages or whatever? But the idea of violence is when you try and force something to happen, you're going against natural order. If I say, look, I'm John Burnside, I've read all these books, I'm right, I know, and try and force my way of doing things 
onto the world around me, that's violence. And all that will happen coming out of that is violence will come back to me. And that means, of course, that we have to pay attention to the people around us and listen to them and, and talk to those people. We can't force them to live, you know. I mean, one of the great failures of the revolutions that have happened is that small groups of people have tried to force everybody to live the way they want to live. But all we can do is, is say, live exemplary lives, if you like. I'm not saying that I do, but I mean, the best anarchists do, I think. The best spiritual teachers, for example, live according to nature, live according to the way, um, and other people see them doing that, see the good results come of it. Um, they may not get rich, they may not you know, have the kind of success that we are brought up to think is success. But when I, I got to a certain age, I suddenly turned around and thought, everything I was ever educated to think was going to be, was going to make me happy, none of it's ever made me happy, you know. Um, so what does make me happy? What makes me happy is companionship, a good meal, the natural world around me, you know, just going out and sitting by the river for the day or whatever. These are the things that I have been happy by. Um, pursuing uh, success, pursuing, um, well, there's a great uh, American philosopher, James P. Corus. He wrote a book called Finite and Infinite Games. And he said, we all play finite games. We all want to be the CEO. We all want to be the baseball star. We all want to have, you know, our own rock band. But um, those are finite games. And they're only played for, within a short span of time to satisfy ourselves. But there's one other game that we can play, and that's the infinite game. And all through the book, you're waiting for him to tell you what the infinite game is. And at the end of the book, he says to you, there's only one infinite game. And I guess, you know, you realize that he's talking about everything. If you play for the sake of the game, if you play for the sake of everything around you, for the, for the continuation of the game, even after you've left it, that's the most satisfying thing of all. And I think, you know, I'm getting on, I'm, I'm in my 60s now, and I, I think occasionally, I don't get too morbid, but I think occasionally about mortality, you think someday I won't be here. And, and the game will continue without me. And that gives me great pleasure. At least I hope it will. Yeah, absolutely. And when you were talking about the things that 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 uh, that make you happy, you know, one of the things that's funny about that when you hear it, you're like, "Oh, that's so that's so small, that's so ordinary." And yet, mm. what what is it that? Even, I mean, I think that people, even if they're even as they're caught up with pursuing much more, you know, visible successes. If they're really honest with themselves and they go, "What? When am I actually really happy?" It's things like, "Oh, when I'm eating, sharing a meal with a friend, when we're having a good conversation, yeah. when I'm, you know," that, and it's it's most of it's pretty simple stuff. Why is it so hard for us to not not just even pursue those kinds of goals, but to even recognize how much how how satisfied we can already be if we tune into that? ordinary level of experience which is so rich if if we bring our attention to it why is that why is that so hard for us i think the other side of the coin is security and um, what we're what we're trained for from the moment we're born is on the one hand we want to aspire we want to have things we want to be successful we want our parents to smile on us we want our classmates to applaud us when we take part in the school play we want to get a magna cum laude degree, you know, et cetera. We want all those things. But on the other hand, we have insecurity. We have that fear, constant fear. 
If I don't get those things, I'll be left behind. If I'm not at the party, where will I be? I'll be alone. People will be enjoying themselves over there, and I won't be at the party. Or, you know, when you're a young kid, you know, you think, oh, I have to be there. I have to do this. I have to see this movie because everybody else has seen it. All my friends will be talking about it. What do I do if I can't speak about the movie? You know, stupid things like this. And I remember quite, you know, desperate fights with my father to watch a certain TV series because the next day in school, all my friends would be talking about it. But my father wouldn't like, didn't want to watch it. So I'd desperately fight with him to try and see at least part of the show. So I could say, oh, yeah, I remember that bit where he did this. And, um, you know, these were things that one aspired to. And on the other hand, you were afraid of being left alone out in the dark. Poverty, um, old age with no security. I mean, I const- I'm, I'm 63 now. I constantly get things sent to me saying, how are you going to look after your kids when you're old? Um, what's your pension going to be like? How are you going to pay for your funeral? All of these things, you know? And, and that's the other side of things. We don't want to be... We don't want to be insecure. We don't want to find ourselves falling through the cracks. And of course, the society we live in deliberately builds the cracks that people are falling through. I mean, they aren't just accidental. They deliberately build those cracks. They cut back on health care. They cut back on Social Security. It costs so little to do these things. And those are the first places where they always look, look for cuts. Yeah, and it, That's and the key. <clears throat> it prevents so we we don't have the uh, uh, without this this sort of net whether it's provided by the state or provided by this the this you know still lingering uh, mechanism of local relationships which of course have also been torn apart for for all sorts yeah. of reasons through capital that when you have that kind of sense of uh, of some security then you're able to enjoy <laughs> you're able to be outside of that time frame where you're always looking ahead there's always like it's always about the future and achievement and what's going to happen in the end and what's going to happen next week and if you're thinking that way all the time you can't really appreciate how deep a moment can be whether it's a, yeah. a moment of not doing the way you know you talk about the pascal line about you know, man's incapacity of being able to just sit in a room for a while and not do yeah. anything or or you're sitting by the river or you're even having a, a mystical moment or you're having a uh a, a, a love affair and a night, what someone else might call a one-night stand, could, can be an abs- you know, a total romance for one night, and that's it. And that those yeah. things, from another perspective, outside of conventional time, those things are not only some of the peak moments in life, but they open up into a kind of different kind of time almost, almost a sort of, um, almost more of a mystical time or some other resonant time that's not about the calendar, that's not about the clock. Um, but it's very hard to get there, in, I think, in, 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 current, in our current conditions. There's, there's, there's one great thing that we, um, I think that we all have as a possible um, tool, a possible weapon, if you like, instrument, and that's play. You know, um, as soon as you feel any bit of security, any kind of security in your life, your first impulse is to play. You know, when you get, I mean, um, you may play musical instrument, you play some kind of game, or you just play games in life, you know. And there's a, a wonderful, uh, he was a Scottish uh, psychoanalyst, um, a guy called uh, Sutty, uh, Sutty, and um, he, he wrote a book that was, I'm trying to remember what it's called now, The Origins of Love and Hate, great title. 
But his basic uh, hypothesis was, as a child grows up, the child sees the mother, to begin with, as the point in which safety emanates from the mother. And then the child moves out from the mother, knowing where the mother is, and can come back to where the mother is. And then as the sense of security, and then, of course, autonomy, then grows, they play more. They play more, and they, they move further away, and they play more, more freely, and they become more inventive. And the basic model for Sati's uh, ideal psychoanalysis is based on this positive model, if you like, of play, of seeking danger and excitement and adventure and returning when needed back to the safe place um, and then beginning to, you know, constantly venturing out further until one can feel safe and at home anywhere, wherever one is. And, of course, Sati is almost unknown now, uh, whereas Freud is, is quoted everywhere. And, of course, Freud gave Catholic system the exact form of psychoanalysis that it needed, where everything was like based on fear. I mean, you know, I never once remember consciously or unconsciously being afraid that somebody would castrate me as a child, maybe later on, but certainly not as a child. And I certainly know that my, neither of my sisters had penis envy. These ridiculous theories were propagated to millions, whereas Sati's model about play, about trust, about building trust. And I'm not saying being naive, because obviously I grew up in a very uh, kind of street background, really, and um, I learned quite quickly, very quickly, um, that you couldn't trust necessarily trust people. But I was always prepared to find reasons to trust people that I could. And that was always rewarding. And in Scotland, they have a tradition. Um, mostly, they, they just tell the story, but my father actually did it to me where he stood me on a table, big hard kitchen table. I was about two, three years old. Um, and he said, jump off, I'll catch you. And I, I jumped and he'd step back and let his arms open and I fell on the floor. And he said, that'll teach you to, and that in this world, you should trust no one, not even your father. And that was the way in which we were brought up as, a kid, as kids. In my part of the world, we came from mining towns, steel towns. We were taught not to trust people because they might steal from us, they might harm us, they might deceive us. And that's true, they might, and that, that is a risk. But, but hey, I would rather get deceived or stolen from occasionally than go through my whole life saying I won't trust anyone. And so, you know, um, I think one learns to take a risk, then one takes another risk, and you get knocked back now and then. Now and then. But the risks are always rewarding, the, you know, you learn something or you grow a little in your friendships or your knowledge, you know? Do you think your, your, your interest and capacity to take risks like that is something that had to do with your temperament? Or, or were, did you kind of, were, were, was part of your, your cultural lear, uh, learning a way of opening up that possibility? Like, is there a way to sort of, not teach exactly, but, but to be... Um, opened up to the possibility of play in a world where we have reasons not to trust. Yeah, um, um, for me, I think what happened was um, I, in my mid-teens, I mean, everything was crisis level in my mid-teens. My, and my father was a very um, violent, dominating kind of guy. He would spend all our money on booze and gambling, etc. He would disappear. This, this, this constant uncertainty 
strangely made me more self-reliant because I realized that without anything in your pocket, you still eat. You know, my mother used to buy um, packs of dried fruit and, and, and our, you would see our kitchens, our kitchen cupboards, they would be just be full of these dried foods. Now, we weren't poor all the time. My father would sometimes bring the money home and we'd eat like everybody else. But when we were poor, when we had nothing, she'd take the dried foods down, she'd make these soups. She'd go to the store and say to the, to the butcher, could I have some bones for the dog? The butcher knew we didn't have a dog, but he gave her bones anyway. She made a soup with bones and split peas, and we ate it. I would go around looking for bottles for recycling. Well, it was called um, deposit bottles in those days. You'd pay a, a few pennies on the bottle as a deposit. People would throw them away. I would find them, wash them, take them to the store. I'd get enough money to bring a, you know, get, get us a meal, uh, or even a visit to the cinema, you know, that kind of stuff. So you just became more resourceful. Um, now, I'm not saying that and that, that kind of the way that certain kinds of Republicans will say, oh, if you keep on working, you'll succeed. I'm talking about survival, that's all. You will make a million by doing things like that. And you shouldn't have to if you've got good ideas or whatever. But, um, you know, really, in the, in the end, uh, I wouldn't want to make a million unless the people around me were also fine. And I think that's the other thing you learn from that kind of poverty. The strange thing is that when you're like that, other people who are like that, too, will give you half of what they've got. Very often, they'll share. People who've got more than you, a lot more than you, will turn around and say, well, why are you in this position in the first place? I shouldn't give what I have to you. I have it keep it for myself. And we see that in politics all the time, of course. We see a certain kind of politician who says, you don't deserve a handout. Why are, you, why are we giving you a handout? And, and you know, you want to explain to people, you're, you're going to work as hard as anybody else if you get the opportunity to do it. And, and, and I love that kind of story, the old story that, uh, Emma Goldman said, I'm, I'm prepared to work. If you give me work to do for my bread, I'll work for my bread. But if you don't give me work to do, give me the bread. If you don't give me the work or the bread, I want to take the bread. Now, that's not violence. That's justice. Yeah, very and well said. Different. Yeah. yeah, and she was a wonderful... I mean, Emma Goldman, she was one of my heroes. And, and the way I wish I'd done the book about her as well. Because uh, Henry said that he met her once. He went and he traveled to one of his western journeys. He went to a rally. This is, this is proven that he went to the rally. But he claimed that afterwards he um, stayed behind and he got to talk to her. Um, you know, and she was turning out all these phrases. You know, she turned out one of them being, if the revolution don't dance, it's not my revolution. And I love that. And yeah. we need to learn from people like that, you know. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I think you, you emphasize and, and that's true for both you and for Miller and the way that you guys kind of uh, resonate with, with each other in your book is that um, the, there, there's these profound connections between political anarchism as a political position vis-a-vis -vis property and capital uh, and a, a sort of faith in how people can come together as individuals making decisions, learning together, and something we could call spiritual anarchism. Where Absolutely, a, yeah, a, yeah. a deep trust in the Tao, in nature, and something that can be tasted again in nature. And we just have a, a couple minutes left here, and we have. I know that you're you're very interested into environmentalism, and you have a very ecological framework. And you even bring out the environmentalist side of Miller, which I had never really thought about. 
Um, but I would just like to hear at the at the close here a little bit about how nature becomes a place for us to experience that play or to get that connection with the with with the flow, the deeper way. Yeah, I, I think I think one of the big questions really around that is the word nature. Um, I think you know we're all in nature, even when we live in a city or a town. Um, we can find the natural world um, everywhere around us. And I think it's, it's a sense of connection with something else that is not human. Um, I would say that one of the great examples of this is a wonderful essay by Lauren Isley, the wonderful uh, you know, um, environmental writer of the mid, mid-20th century. And he talks about, he, he checks into a hotel in New York, and he feels far away from his usual surroundings in nature. He's on the, you know, the 17th floor or whatever of this hotel in New York City and Manhattan. And he goes to the window, and he looks out the window, and he sees some hawks nesting just outside. You know? And um, immediately he feels, okay, everything's fine. I feel, you know, his, his blood pressure's going back down again. He's relaxing. He's thinking, you know, nature, the natural world is everywhere. And um, I remember once I was walking on a glacier, and I said, you know, there's no life here to the guy I was walking with. And he told me about the glacier worm. It only exists in one place in Norway, but there's a worm that lives in glaciers, that survives in the glacier. So wherever we go, I like going to places where life is hanging on, seems to be hanging on by a thread. You know, deserts, high tundra, those kinds of places. And um, John, I'm sorry to sorry to interrupt, but we're going to have to to end it there. But I like that it, that life hanging on by a thread. Go there, tune into it. It's always there if you're looking for it. And uh, I, I want to thank you so much for uh, for speaking with us on Expanding Mind. Great, yeah, I enjoyed it hugely. Thanks. All right, John Burnside, author of On Henry Miller or How to Be an Anarchist. And uh, until next week, keep your minds open. 